In this week's show, our guest is Rabbi Dr. Uh, Juan Marcos Bejarano Gutierrez. He will be discussing his book, Reimagining Boundaries, Jewish and Christian Identity in Late Antiquity. And this is part of a series we're doing on the followers of Jesus. Uh, my interest uh, for the next couple of shows is to discuss Paul and a way to look at the Apostle Paul is to see him as a mystical Jew, someone who's speaking in a, in a realm that maybe not too many people are familiar and maybe he was misunderstood. And I wanted to see if um, any, if you touch on any of that uh, in your book, and if not, we can go into how uh, Jews who followed Jesus throughout the centuries were able to relate to the, the Roman world and how some of these traditions got lost throughout the years. Um, what, what brought you to write this book and what can you tell us about it? Well, uh, hello, David. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, it's interesting because I've written on this topic before, but um, I was listening to something that, that was completely unrelated, and that was a lecture on the conquest of Mexico by a well-known Mexican professor, Martin Rios. And um, I've always had an interest in the conquest of Mexico and the Spanish and Portuguese empires. And he brought up the question of how we perceive identity and how it's influenced by nationalistic, uh, emotional, uh, just, you know, political biases, all kinds of things that we don't often think about. And as he began to explain that uh, in the relationship of the Spanish conquistadors and the Aztecs or the Mexica Empire, it made me think that you could apply the same kind of perspectives to the issue of Jews and Christians in antiquity. Um, I don't address specifically the, uh, the writings of Paul, but um, I, I, he is mentioned in the book. But my interest in writing the, this work was to sort of raise some fundamental questions regarding Jewish identity and Christian identity as we assume, as we assume them to be uh, in the 21st century. That is to say that we assume certain things living in our day and age, and we often project those back, you know, centuries in the past. Um, and I think uh, when we do that, we are losing many aspects of the complexity of, of what once was, you know, in the Second Temple period and, and the way that Jews and non-Jews interacted. Um, and certainly part, uh, you know, was their interaction in, in the midst of the Greco-Roman world. But uh, just the way that we look at things, I think, has to be sort of redefined and re-examined and, and reconsidered. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I was having a, a friendly debate with one of our future guests, and he was saying that the way that I interpret Paul has a lot to do with Luther. And I'm like, I'm not a Lutheran. I, I don't follow that type of uh, thinking. And he's like, yeah, but that has been the the path that people have followed for the last, you know, 400, 500 years. And it's really easy to fall into that mentality where Luther was trying to do a polemic against the Catholic church. And that, that a lot of, a lot of that interpretation gets thrown against uh, the Jewish people in the way that uh, Jesus and Paul and the other disciples um, confronted them for whatever reason. Uh, do you see that happening early on where uh, political issues that were happening in the in the Greco-Roman Empire or in the medieval church get um, almost like interpolated with the life of Jesus and uh, the writings of his apostles? Uh, yes, I think it happens on both sides. And what I mean by both sides, it happens within the contemporary Jewish community. Uh, it happened in, in Jewish history. And then it also happened in the emerging or nascent uh, Christian community of the second centuries and beyond, because the critical thing for them, especially on the Christian side, was really defining themselves in contrast to the Jewish community. And at the same time, we often lose uh, a sense of the fact that in many ways, Jews were doing the same thing. Uh, we often think of Jewish identity as having been completely solidified and, and our conceptions of rabbinic thought were, you know, commonplace in the first century. But it's something that in many ways reacted you know, to the outside world. But this Christian group, this, this movement that had a, arisen was also competition. And so you have sort of a back and forth that happens between 
rabbinic circles, and if you want to say the church fathers or you know nascent priestly circles, however you want to identify them in the Christian world. Um, and so there's a back and forth, and in between, there's this long spectrum of people that are not exactly sure where the boundaries lie. Uh, and so their sense of who is a Jew and who is a Christian is is much more nebulous in many ways. Uh, and I think what happens, you know, you talked about reading a particular narrative and, and, and a polemic and looking at, at the past. I think that's exactly what the church fathers did, because one of the challenges that they had is that many of their uh, constituents or their members or their followers, they did not see the official position as the real position. And what I mean by that is that they saw Jews, uh, they might have lived near Jews, and many of them had an interest in Jewish things because they were reading texts that were attributed to the people of Israel, the, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, even if it was in its Septuagint form, its Greek form. And so they would run into these people, and they often didn't match the, the negative image that was painted by the, the church fathers. And so they would be attracted, you know, to their rituals, to their beliefs. And that was oftentimes, most of the time, upsetting to the church fathers who were struggling to define the boundaries of, of who was a Christian, who was not. Uh, and then on the Jewish side, I think in many ways, in, in, the land, in Babylonia, it was not so much of a threat. But it's clear that there's an interaction that takes place. And I think some cases, some stories in the Talmud are, are uh, if we look a little bit deeper, they reflect sort of an unease because they're sort of also curious about how to define who's in and out. So uh, again, it's, it's still nebulous, it's not defined. And uh, sometimes we assume that all these things were clear from the very beginning. And I think from a historical perspective, it's clear that it wasn't. Well, tell us about the the crux of the book, because um, this is new information for a lot of people. Um, you know, when they talk to people who haven't dug as deep as you have, they'll say, oh, well, there was a, a clear split, you know, when Paul came around or during the Bar Kokhba revolt, or um, you can tell from the church fathers and the rabbinic um, writers that there was no... Um, they weren't friends and they were almost enemies from the get-go. And the book, uh, it speaks about uh, something that happened in the 8th century. Tell us more about uh, what you found. Well, let me, let me lay out sort of a general overview, and then I can get to that specific case. Uh, I think the issue is, is that we, like you said, people assume that the lines were drawn very clearly uh, you know, maybe it's 70 CE with the destruction of the temple, or even sometimes people will go further back and say it's it's the uh, the writings of Paul that that spell the break, uh, and then other people say no, 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 we can give it up to the the end of our uh, the Bar Kokhba rebellion, uh, circa 135, and then we see this clear delineation. And I would say that in the minds of a certain elite, uh, that may have been true. You know, if you if you read the the writings of Justin Martyr and his dialogue with Trifo, this, this Jew, we don't know if he was a real person or if he's sort of, uh, you know, just sort of mythical or something that he's made up for the purposes of debate. Um, you can see some type of, of a real conversation and ha happening between them. Um, and it's in the aftermath of the destruction of Bar Kokhba's rebellion. Um, and you can see there that Justin is espousing views that essentially say that, you know, the Jewish people have lost their place in uh, their special relationship with God, uh, this kind of uh, replacement or supersessionist viewpoint. Um, you have a, a Christology, which is going to be at odds with the majority of the Jewish community. Um, you, you could see the elements there, but I think the problem that we often miss, or the element that we miss, is that there's still a dialogue that happens between these two figures, whether they're wh whether Trifo is a real person or not. Um, it's a real conversation that could have taken place. And the reason that I think Justin and so many other church fathers, particularly in the second and third centuries, are often very uh, antagonistic is because many of the common people can't tell where the boundaries lie. Um, and so in their own minds, they're not exactly sure who's in and out. And so you pointed to a case in the, uh, the eighth century, so we're talking about the 700s. There was an individual by the name of Sergius the Stylite. These were uh, individuals that would, would essentially 
uh, you know, spend a lot of their time on a pillar or, you know, they would stand on this pillar and, um, you know, they might philosophize, but in this particular case, this is a, a Christian monk. And he has a debate. Again, we don't know if it's a theoretical debate or not, but the answer that is given by the Jew is very convincing. It's very real. It, it, it seems like it's taken from a real conversation. And so Sergius gives this very negative depiction about Jews and, and all the, the, uh, the crimes that he believes that they've committed throughout history and the rejection of the, of the Jesus message or whatever you want to designate it as. Um, and so he gives a very typical, by this time, negative portrait of, of Jews and Judaism. And then the Jew responds in an amazing way. And he basically says, that's, that's interesting because we have a lot of people who are Christians who come to services. You know, they visit the synagogue, uh, they, they visit for the holidays, uh, you know, they spend time with us, they celebrate Passover. These things that by the eighth century, you think would have been very clearly delineated. The common person either doesn't know where the boundaries lie or they don't care. Uh, they have friends that are Jews or they're interested in something that they have read about and the best way to, to experience it is to actually go to the people, to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people. Um, and, that, and that's important because in many ways, it had to have shattered the myth or the, the, the portrait, the image that many church fathers and uh, clerics were, were painting and had painted. Um, and I think what happens is you, you see the same thing today uh, in you know, 21st century America. I think if you ask a person, what is it that differentiates uh, Judaism and Christianity, they'll give you a very simple answer. But if you take them outside of that answer, they often are at a loss to really say what the differences are between the two religious groups. They basically say, well, they're basically the same, or there's so much in common. It's just that, you know, Jews, Jews don't believe this, or, or Christians do believe that. Uh, and it's very simplistic. But when they interact with individuals, um, it's a completely different experience. And I think that we, we have to be cognizant of that because, um, again, we, we live in a time in which we have so many uh, options and choices and we just see the world very differently. And I think if you go back into the uh, antiquity, uh, you, you can certainly see that things were much more complicated and, and the boundaries between these religious communities were not as clear as, as they were, at least as we think they are. When you talk about people reading um, what they call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible and then going to synagogue to experience it themselves, um, the the same group that I've been discussing this with says that um, they're, they're Christian missionaries and they say that in Christendom there's been this idea where you emphasize Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and then you jump all the way to Matthew because they are uncomfortable with the the history of Abraham, Moses, and, and the prophets that somehow they don't think is relevant or that it is too complicated or too um, not as simple of a message uh, as the message of Jesus. And, and they, they break it down into creation, um, like redemption, and then, uh, you know, end times, and that's it. Um, do you think that that's what the, the church fathers were trying to do, like, de-emphasize some of the parts that weren't they weren't able to justify and weren't able to incorporate into a christian lifestyle but then the the masses had some other experience and then how many of the people were literate enough to be able to even navigate all the texts that were available at that time well i think that uh it's, it's interesting because the the church had a very problematic uh you know problem in front of them i mean problematic problem is this redundant but uh, they had a very challenging problem problem in front of them. On the one hand, they had accepted or appropriated the, the, the texts that were sacred to the majority of Jews. Obviously, in the Septuagint, you have uh, additional uh, texts like the, you know, the Apocrypha. But even then, these works to themselves are, are from the Second Temple period. They're very Jewish works. And I always tell people that it's amazing that something like First and Second Maccabees, which, of course, depict the the struggle for Judaism by a, a small group of, of Kohanim, of priests, in a, in a battle against Hellenization, that these are actually preserved by the Catholic and Eastern churches. 
they're not a, a Jewish text in the sense that we don't, you know, we don't have them as part of the Tanakh, but because of them, we have this critical aspect of, of Jewish history that's preserved. So there's this kind of conundrum there, because on the one hand, the church is preserving these texts, and yet, you know, they, it's not so simple for them to just jump from one part to the next, because people are like, well, you have all these texts, you know, in, in, in the Bible, what do you do with them? And I think what they chose to do was essentially to displace the Jewish people, even as they were preserving their text. So they would essentially idealize, uh, you know, what I would call this mythic Israel. You know, Israel has always existed, and this is our history. Uh, but, you know, Jews, because of their disobedience, um, you know, they've sort of been written out, or they've lost that connection, and this history now belongs to, to us. And as I always point out, that once you have a displacement, or once you have a replacement, you are, it's not just a theological issue, you are invalidating the existence of the original community. Um, and of course, the ramifications of that are very serious, because if a person is no longer, you know, if you take a, if you have a, a book, and it's old, and it's, uh, you don't take care of it, and it's torn, many people will what? They'll just discard the book. Uh, and then if you, you think about it in the same way, if you have a, a, a piece of clothing, it gets old and ragged, you, you don't need it, right? It becomes dispensable. And I think that in many ways, the church fathers did that to the Jewish people. Uh, but what's amazing is that, you know, they, they try to extricate the text, and yet at the same time, they, they try to put the blame, if you will, on Jews, um, and it creates a very, very horrific situation uh, centuries later, and of course culminates in the 20th century with, with the Shoah. So it's just an amazing story because the foundations of Christianity are, uh, are Jewish. Uh, as Gabriele Boccaccini says, it's, it's the Judaic system. Um, what I've added to that description is that it's a Judaic system that's bereft of Jewishness, because uh, as, as, the, as the Christian church emerged and lost its Jewish component, it retained many elements there that, that in fact stemmed from the Second Temple period, but the actual living component, if you will, the, the actual people that were tied to the physical people of Israel were, were slowly and eventually excluded. So it's, it's a really, uh, in many ways, I would say very uh, sad and tragic uh, plan that unfolds. And I don't even think that they, that the church fathers who did this could see the ramifications of this. And, and oftentimes I think that they sort of lived in these two different worlds because you see individuals like Jerome um, and, and others who will study with Jews, uh, and you can see this in the medieval period as well, They'll learn Hebrew, they'll learn Midrashim, they'll learn things about uh, traditional Judaism. Um, and of course, in order to do that, you have to have some kind of uh, interaction, and there has to be some level of basic respect. Now, whether they lose that theologically, or whether they feel that they have to, uh, you know, not seem like they're too uh, accepting, that, that might have been the case. But it's interesting because they seem to be able to divide their world when they need to. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's quite telling. So how is the book broken down? Uh, what's the, the structure of the book? Well, the first part of the book is, is really these big questions. What is it that um, we assume uh, really brings up a lot of assumptions in how we approach uh, a text? And how we assume both in, in the Jewish community and as well as in the Christian community, how both communities look back and, and sort of impose their expectations on the past. And I think you could say, you know, in, in the Christian world, you, you, I think it would be fair to say that many uh, evangelical Christians, you know, when they read the, the, uh, the New Testament or the, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, they sort of impose their evangelical expectations on that. And, it, and like you said, in that sense, it's almost like, you know, from the first century or whatever century might be, they sort of jump to the present, you know, world and nothing has changed. It's just like a straight connection. And then oftentimes in the Jewish community, um, there's almost this picture that's painted of uh, the Second Temple, you know, you, you, you having uh, groups that are reflective or comparable to, 
you know, more modern orthodoxy and, and Hasidut and Hasidic circles and things like that. And, and indeed, those, you know, the Jewish world is based on a link that goes back to that period of time, no question about it. But, but the Jewish world in the Second Temple era was much more complex. And sometimes we don't realize that as much as Judaism impacted what became Christianity, Christianity has also had a severe and significant impact, not necessarily for the bad at all times, but it's also had an impact on Jewish perspective. And we often times are not aware of that. Uh, you know, we, it sometimes makes us feel uncomfortable because um, as, as I began the, the book with, um, you know, what is, uh, I began with a, with a Dutch proverb, and if I could read that to you just very quickly, uh, it says, the less we differ, the more we hate. And the idea, of course, is that people often feel the most uncomfortable when they feel they're too much like something that they believe should be very different from them. Um, and so that, I think that's foundational. Then I get into this issue of history, and I use the, the, the example of the conquest of Mexico, which, you know, is, is very different. But I sort of try to bring up these ideas so that people will try to understand them in a way that's disconnected from the religious realm. So then, you know, if, if they can appreciate the his, historical issues in a different context, then they can come back and they can say, okay, I, I see what he's trying to convey. Uh, about assumptions and biases, and now I can I can look at the rest of the book, and then the rest of the book focuses in on these groups that I call, um, you know, they're, they're the middle groups of the of the spectrum. So if you were to draw a line between, you know, what we think of as Christians and then Jews on the opposite side, um, you know, the rest of the book is really talking about these groups that are in the middle that that seem to defy the expectations of either group. Uh, and in their own minds, they don't seem to have any, uh, they don't seem to have a, uh, a schizophrenia, if we want to put it that way, where they're, where they're torn between these identities, they see them as perfectly meshed. And I think that um, it's not a vindication or an endorsement of any group that does that today, but it is to emphasize how in that period of time, uh, there were many groups that were still in flux. And, and again, those, those worlds were very dynamic. And what came from one world might uh, penetrate the boundaries of, of the other, but then it might flow back into the original community. And I think that if you look at something, um, there's a good example in the medieval period, which, I'm, which I know that you're familiar with, uh, the, the miraculous uh, birth of Abraham Avinu, uh, of Abraham, our father, um, and the depictions of Abraham uh, with a star that appears over, you know, where he's born, and just many of the images that 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 uh, are drawn, it's clear that there's a a Christian impact on the Jewish community, um, and there have been, you know, you know, other scholars that have written on how Abraham, in essence, becomes uh, a counter to the exalted uh, Christ figure in Christianity. And so in the medieval period, it's, it's impossible for Jews not to be impacted by, by Christians. And of course, in earlier periods, it's impossible for Christians not to be impacted by uh, Jewish thought either. So there's really, there's a lot of interplay between the two, um, and they've never been sealed off from each other. And, and so the purpose of looking at these middle groups in the third and fourth centuries is to really get us to think differently about the, this time period uh, where we, we assume, and I think we've, we've done so for centuries, that everything was clear. It was all black and white. And uh, to me, it's, it's even clearer now that it wasn't. It was, you know, shades of gray um, and just, just a much more fluid and, and dynamic world than, than we can imagine. I know this is uh, related to a different book that you wrote, but um, I was um, discussing with someone that when when it comes down to theology, uh, you know, Jewish or Christian theology, that they, at times they were trying to answer the same questions. So you wrote about Enoch and Enoch being an intercessor between God and man. And the more I started looking at that uh, idea in rabbinic circles, the more it, it sounded similar to the idea of Jesus in the writings of Paul. Do you see them trying to answer the same question? How does the transcendent God uh, communicate with mortal man in, in, the, in, 
in some specific form and then later it became with through the sefirot or other mystical uh, means uh, and, and how does that play a part in in the division that you know nowadays people think is like well the difference is that some people follow Jesus and some people don't uh, do you think that the way that God was depicted or described by each group is what kind of caused the rift um, because it became so specific in some sense? Well, well, I think one, one thing that I note in the book is that, that, that I've really come to believe is that we need to allow the voice of each book, whether it's in the Tanakh or whether it's in the New Testament, if you're coming from a Christian background, to speak on its own terms. And that doesn't mean, of course, you know, when I give a Devar Torah or a Drash or, you know, a quote-unquote sermon uh, in, in the shul, um, I'm going to be using rabbinic sources, Midrashim, and, and the Bavli, the Talmud, etc. But it's important also to allow the text to stand on its own and to hear the unique voice that it presents to the reader and to the person that is listening. And the reason I say that is because if you look at text on their own terms, they often say something that is different from another text that is right beside it. And sometimes we don't hear that voice because we already have this overarching voice we assume is speaking for all these books. So for example, um, if you're looking at uh, the Tanakh, if you look at the book of Chronicles and you look at the book of Kings, they talk about very similar circumstances, right? The rise of David or the, you know, the decline of Saul, the rise of David, Solomon, etc. But if you look at the details, the voices are different and they communicate very different things about the same events. And what is left out and what is emphasized is part of the voice of the If you look at the New Testament and you were look at the Gospel of Matthew and you look at the Gospel of John, you have very different images. And I think the problem is, is that people, and, and I know they do this because they're sincere, but they assume that they speak with one voice. And if somehow, if they don't speak with one voice, they are uh, undermining the message of what they're trying to you know, communicate and derive from that text. But to me, that text is communicating a particular vision of a community that may be in sync with a community that came before it. So you brought up the issue of Enoch. And of course, if, if you've read the book of Hebrews, it's clear that the, to me that this community is very much influenced by the Enochic tradition by the Enochic movement, and of course, some people have said Enochic Judaism, uh, this idea of, as you said, explaining the, uh, the transcendent God, explaining the, the uh, chaos in nature, uh, of trying to sort of reconcile what, what I would call unfinished business. And I think that as you, as you move through the Second Temple period, there, all these ideas are in play, uh, you know, apocalypticism, and, and there's the more halachically oriented movements, and you have all these you know, mystical elements that are beginning to form. And I think in many ways, the Christian movement is, is drawing from these Jewish movements and it incorporates them and they become part of that identity. But even within the Christian movement, as, as Rabbi Jacob Neusner says, there's not one voice, there's many Christianities. And they're each drawing from this, this pool of Jewish ideas and thought uh, but yes, once they begin to emphasize to the exclusion of others, you you begin to sort of have more uh, conflict. And, I, and again, you could say the same thing in the Jewish world. You know, the, the community at Qumran was very uh, exclusivistic in many ways. You know, they, they, they very heavily criticized uh, what we believe to have been uh, the Pharisees, the Perushim. Um, you know, they, they saw themselves in many ways in the same sense that Christians later saw themselves as the elect and, uh, you know, this, this special community. They even used the same terms uh, that, that the Nicene Christian community uh, used. And so I think as, as you, you travel in history, you see these ideas uh, become accepted by a particular group. And then the other group, as almost as an emotional reaction, wants to separate itself from that, even though they both shared that tradition in the past. So if, if you talk about Enoch, it's, it's interesting in particular because you can see the Enoch tradition fall away from the mainstream of Jewish thought in the rabbinic period, but we know it continues because we have uh, Sefer Chechalot, uh, or Third Enoch, and then it sort of disappears, but then it comes back in the medieval period. 
and then it rises again. Now, whether that's because of a direct influence of Christianity or because those texts are rediscovered and they sort of flow back into the Jewish community, it's, it's an interesting question, but you know, we, many scholars have referred to that as, as uh, uh, back borrowing. This idea that it's, it's an idea, it's a Jewish idea, it falls out of favor, and then it comes back into the Jewish world. And I think you could do the same thing with the, with the Christian experience. There are some ideas that simply fell out of favor because they were too Jewish, and then somehow they return because you know, there's a different political order, there's a different social order, um, and then people, of course, are more comfortable. You know, today, I think we have a lot of people that, that are really focused in on rediscovering the past. So they begin to incorporate things that you know, a few centuries ago uh, would have been completely uh, unacceptable, I think, to most Christians. And, and even, again, on the Jewish side, you, you, I think you could see the same thing happening. Well, and that's an interesting point because someone was telling me that as, as a non-Jew, they, they like to pray Jewish prayers. And then I said, well, you know that within the Jewish prayers, there is a malediction against uh, sectarians. And, and they're like, oh, well, there's a lot of debate about who's a heretic and who's an apostate and things like that uh, from the original source. And I said, well, yeah, but historically that has uh, been a, a way of, of saying, well, these are ours and they're not to be shared or something like that. So one of the, um, the chapters in your book, you talk about the, the minut. Um, how, how would they define someone as a heretic within the Jewish perspective? And then we know how Christians have written uh, encyclicals about who's a heretic and who's not, and all the heretics that lived in, in the first few centuries. So in, in the Jewish circles, was there uh, a heretic hunting, as you see sometimes being portrayed in the in the letters of Paul, that very early they were trying to keep out people who called themselves apostles and they were not, or called themselves Jews and they were not, or that they were um, sharing a different gospel. Was there any uh, of that almost policing of theology going on in rabbinic circles? Well, there, there's a statement that I made in the book about, um, I wouldn't say the insignificance of menim or sectarians or heretics, but uh, there is a, I can't think of the, the exact source, but it was essentially a survey. Uh, I, th I think it was Shai Cohen, I believe, who had counted the number of Mishnayot, in, in, you know, the, these, these, the, the plural of Mishnas in, in the Mishnah itself, these, these uh, statements that, that you know, introduce a particular topic. And I think he counted the number of, of Mishnayot, and then he counted the ones that include a reference to Minim, to sectarians, and it was something like eight versus hundreds. I forgot what the exact number was, um, but it was it was a very small percentage, not even at one percent or something like that. And what Shai Cohen was was in essence trying to say is that it's not that heresy wasn't something that the rabbis were concerned about, but it obviously doesn't occupy the same kind of importance that Christians certainly placed on it in the first and in, into the second centuries. Um, I think there were cases where belief, of course, is, is an issue, but I think in many ways the, the focus was on practice and the acceptance of what I would call um, community loyalty. Um, if you separate, you know, one of the things the rabbis say in the Perkeavot, you know, about separating yourself from the community, um, it, it's, it's very clear in, in other passages as well. Um, if you are separating yourself from the, from the established community, you've already sort of rendered yourself a heretic. You know, you've already cut yourself off. And so I think in many ways, it wasn't as big as an issue for the rabbis because as the transition between a Jewish movement and a non-Jewish movement happened for various reasons, most of these non-Jews were not going to be participating in synagogue life. Again, we pointed to certain cases, uh, you know, Sergius as, as, as Stylite, there are other cases, Chrysostom, you know, writes about Christians visiting the synagogue. And this has always been the case. I mean, we have that case today. You know, in the 21st century, we have Christians, uh, you know, visiting synagogue services. Um, but I think that unless they're really integrated, it's not really a threat. You know, they're there to learn. They, they sort of go for an experience, and then they probably don't come back. And I, I think that that's very important because 
if an individual is is promoting an alternate view and along with that is violating halachic precepts or the legal precepts of how things are done then i think that probably became the more significant you know uh, red alert you know to say oh this person is they're doing something here that is counter the community the other thing that i point out is that uh and it comes as a shock to many people is that the rabbis i don't really believe had the kind of authority that we envision uh the rabbinic classes are very small um, they only have really moral influence until they're granted basically lower court authority uh, you know, under the Persians and, and under the Romans, they, they really have limited capacity. And so really what they have is they have the ability to influence people by their their moral rectitude, by their sense of holiness. Um, you know, I, I think uh, Jacob Neusner describes them almost as as a holy man, but as, as a shaman almost, you know, like a, a medicine man kind of thing, because people say, hey, this is a person that's holy. It's like Elijah the prophet or Elisha. You know, if, if I have a problem, I'll go to the rabbi. He'll, he'll uh, you know, say a prayer for Rufuah Shalema for healing. But the rabbis are functioning in capacities where involved in the community. Um, uh, Jacob Neuser, I think, used the term, or Gary Porton used the term as a community organizer. Um, or, you know, they're a judge. They're, um, you know, they're, they're obviously involved in ritual with marriages and divorce. So they have a prominent position. But, but for the most part, it's really their moral uh you know the ability of them to impact people by their example and by the respect that they can garner and you know i always tell people nowadays it's it's a, it's funny but um you know rabbis are not you know powerful in many cases you know the, the synagogue boards have more power um i remember a story of a friend who lived in israel and uh he would always joke, and it was a true story would say we would have a rabbi come to the to the Beit Knesset, the the god and they, they told him, you know, you can come, but you, you can't say anything. You know, we're going to run the service and, and you're, you're, you can daven, you can pray with us, but, you know, we're not looking for a halachic authority. And, and, you know, that's a particular case, you know, that's sort of an extreme. But I always use that as, as an example because it shows that um, at some point, rabbinic authority is limited. Now, of course, we have communities today that are, you know, very much tied to the Rebbe. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that was the case, you know, among the, the Talmudim or the disciples of, of the rabbis at the yeshivot and so forth. But, you know, the average person simply did not have the time or the, the knowledge to be able to, to follow all the dictates. And so um, I think the rabbis, many scholars have argued, the rabbis did not have control of the synagogues, certainly in the, in the first, few, first few centuries. So any malediction, berkat or anything else, it would really depend on that local community. And I think if you, you can argue the same as the case today, um, unless that community is sort of looking specifically for someone they consider to be a troublemaker, um, I just don't see that as happening in, in most communities today in the Jewish world. Do you believe there was such a thing as a Jewish Gnostic uh, group or movement? Because I've heard it debated as, you know, when when there was a de-emphasis on Kabbalah, they would say, oh, well, that's part of the Gnostic tradition in Judaism. And then they started saying, well, what Gnostic tradition? But if you read some of the Gnostic uh, texts, some of them are very anti-Jewish, and some of them have some elements that later on uh, show up as well. Um, what's your view regarding Gnosticism being one of the sectarian groups that uh, the rabbis were concerned about? Well, the rabbis seem to have these debates when the menim appear. Um, it's theoretically possible that they're engaging with either individuals that we would call Christians or Jewish Christians or, you know, whatever term we want to use, or because of the reference to the to reshuyot, these, these powers in heaven, it's possible that they're also talking to Gnostics, although it's not clear whether, they're, whether they are, are Jewish Gnostics or they're just, you know, non-Jewish Gnostics that, are familiar with biblical text. You know, they're maybe looking at biblical text as part of the wisdom of ancient peoples. And I think that that's important to note because Jews had a certain respect in the Roman Empire. Um, obviously, the, the rebellions were, were very problematic, but there was a certain respect that could be given to Jews because they were an ancient people. And, and the Romans had a, a measure of deference for that. They could respect that. They could even make allowances 
uh, and even give Jews certain privileges that they wouldn't give to other people because they could say, oh, there's, there's an ancient um, identity that they have. And, you know, they also did certain things that benefited us, you know, in the past, the, the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees had uh, a, a relationship with Rome. Uh, I think Julius Caesar was, was assisted by, uh, you know, the Hasmoneans, uh, I think through the person of Herod, um, you know, so that there, there were certain relationships there that they honored. And I think as, as an ancient people, their texts would have been a source of, uh, of inquiry for, for people that were not necessarily Jewish. Is there a specific Jewish group that we can identify? I, I don't know about that. Um, I don't know that anybody has really identified that. And, but I think it's certainly possible and it's certainly something to consider. It's interesting that you said that in later periods, there was this pushback, right, against, against that view because you have people like Heinrich, uh, Gratz and so forth that, you know, they don't even want to talk about Kabbalah. They, they look at it as something that's very, uh, almost like demeaning, you know, very uh, uneducated, um, you know, beliefs and, and superstitions and things of that nature. So it's interesting how even in the Jewish world, you know, there has been sort of uh, these, these, these uh, trends for and against, you know, now, of course, Kabbalah mysticism is very popular. Uh, but it's interesting that, as you noted, that it, it hasn't always been the case, at least in the uh, more academically oriented uh, world of Jewish scholars. Well, in the one story that comes to mind is, I can't remember exactly, but there was something with Eve and, and the serpent and having children. And then you see it in later Kabbalistic texts and you're like, how did they go from some type of cultic group or mystery cult in the second century and then it reappears later as as a mystical perspective among some jews and i know they had access to greek texts but um it seems like um there was some tradition there that they would either was lost or re-evaluated or reincorporated and how much of, of that do you see um you mentioned a, a lot the clementine homilies and other texts that are not as familiar to some audiences, uh, where did these texts come from, and and what was, what kernels of uh, historical truth can you find in them? Well, the Clementine literature is very important because, in many ways, uh, you know, for for a very long period of time, people looked at this text uh, or these these collection of texts because it's more than one, and they they saw they they believed that maybe this was representative of a community that had links back to the first century. So it's a, it's a quote unquote, let's, let's use the term Christian because it's you know, hard to come up with new terminology, uh, a Christian group that was somehow linked to the community of Jerusalem and they, they embraced a very uh, pro-Torah, very pro-Jewish uh, identity. Um, and what many scholars nowadays basically say is whether it's ancient or not is in many ways irrelevant um, because if it's not ancient, then it really reveals something even more astounding, which is the fact that a community in the third and fourth centuries of the common era, uh, of course, what we consider to be now the time of, of rabbinic Judaism and, and uh, Christianity as we think about it, was capable of retaining such, not just Jewish views or Torah views, but almost in essence, rabbinic views. The idea, for example, of the uh, Torah Shebe'al Alpeh, the, the oral Torah, this oral transmission seems to be a major part of the, the Clementine literature, especially the Clementine homilies. Um, they believe the Torah is relevant for Jews, even though you know, they, they might believe that Jesus is the prophet, but they also believe it's applicable to non-Jews. So you can see already how controversial this idea is. Now, the Clementine homilies in particular is, is very uh, unique because it, it essentially introduces the idea of, of corruption of text, you know, this is something very, that we sort of identify in later periods, but there's this idea that, that, that the written text can only be truly understood by somebody that is capable of interpreting and sort of extracting the elements that have creeped in, that are, that are obscuring the, the true meaning of the text. And so in essence, what they do is they, they place almost a greater emphasis on the oral transmission. And of course, what we find in, in, uh, you know, rabbinic text is this idea that the Torah was revealed in, in both written and oral form. And it's just amazing that a quote-unquote Christian group that late would continue to, to espouse that. What's even more amazing, I think, in many ways, is that in the, in the case of the Clementine um, 
the, the, the sister to the Clementine homilies, uh, that there is, it's translated into many, many languages. And for a text of this nature to have been, uh, the Clementine recognitions to have been translated into many languages shows you that it was a very popular text. And it's, it's views that stood contrary to the established church or to the emerging church were insufficient to keep it from being you know, reg- relegated to ob- obscurity. There were people who were translating this text. And as, as, as we know, the process of translating the text was not simple, right? It's, it's, a, it's an arduous process. And then, of course, creating copies for people to read was, was very significant. And so uh, I just think it's, it's an amazing text that has often been neglected. Um, it gives us uh, a different understanding of how Jew, Jews who believed in the Messianic claims of Jesus in some form may have continued into this period and how they didn't see uh, really a break between themselves and, and the Jewish people and Judaism. Um, and it's interesting because w- w- I think one of the most amazing statements that I have to point to in the homilies is that they basically see uh, truth in both, uh, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu and, and Moses and in, in Jesus the prophet as they identify him. So they see that if a person has one or the other, um, as long as they don't hate the other, they are, they're fine. Because in many ways, they simply reflect the same truth that God has revealed. So I think in many ways, you know, to put it in the context of the 21st century, it's, it's an amazing example, or at least in theory, uh, for, for tolerance and a sense that you know, both, both groups are trying to search and engage with the, the God of, of Israel. Um, and so I think in that sense, it, it was many, in many ways far beyond its time. Uh, you know, to be able to embrace that kind of uh, tolerant view. There's a section in your book where you mention binetarianism. Uh, do does this group um, espouse that, or do they have a different formula for the Trinity as compared to what we know from the Greco-Roman Church? Well, it's interesting because, as I mentioned, you have the Clementine homilies, you have the Clementine recognitions, uh, and then you have some smaller works that are part of this uh, Clementine literature. The, the, the Clementine Recognitions uses a, uh, a Trinitarian formula, but then it goes on to sort of explain it and then basically almost argue against it. You know, it's sort of an interesting, it's like they had their own take on this particular view. The Clementine Homilies uh, is, is even more explicit and basically says, you know, we don't, uh, in, in one of the debates that takes place in the Clementine Homilies, one of the opponents, uh, this, this individual, Simon Magus, who actually appears in the New Testament, he is the opponent of, of Peter. And this, this Simon Magus basically says, you know, why, do, why don't you, I'm paraphrasing, of course, why don't you believe that Jesus is God? And then Peter's answer is, is very simple. We don't have a tradition for that. You know, we can't say that because we didn't receive this tradition. And, and that's amazing because it gets back to this idea of a Masora, of a tradition that has been handed down by a previous generation. And they're basically saying, we don't have a basis for this, so we can't claim that. And in the Clementine homilies, their emphasis is really on uh, Jesus as a prophet. And I think in, in of course, traditional Christianity, um, that is, is not, that's downplayed, right? I mean, that's something that is recognized uh, in the gospels. He's called the prophet. But it's not really the mainstay of the title that is given to him, whether it's it's uh, Messiah or Christ or Lord or, you know, et cetera. Uh, but the, but the, the Clementine literature puts a tremendous amount of emphasis on the prophet because from their standpoint, the prophet is the one who will correct and instruct for proper observance of the Torah. And it gets back to this issue of the Torah is, is critical to their faith because this is how they live a righteous life. So even, you know, everything that I've mentioned, I think already differentiates it from the, uh, the normative church of that period. So how did they incorporate um, the death of Jesus and the resurrection? Do they see it as a, a real thing? Do they, um, like Paul, say that without it, you have no life within you or something like that? Do they hold any liturgical or tradition that that correlates with mainstream christianity because that that's what christians uh, would say that would make them heretics that they don't follow 
maybe they can follow Torah to whatever extent, but if they don't incorporate the the three elements, you know, the, the incarnation, the death and resurrection is salvific, um, and then the acceptance and, and belief that, that makes you uh, a part of that model, that then you're not a true Christian, where would they stand within those three elements? Well, I would say that in, in most cases, they're, uh, what they placed the most emphasis on was immersion, uh, baptism. The, the one element that is, is, is interesting about the Clementine literature is that they were very opposed to the korbanot, to the sacrifices. They saw that sort of as an accommodation. There may be a corruption of the text. It was never ideal. And in many ways, if, if you look at later Jewish writers in the medieval period, it's almost like the Rambam, Maimonides, who basically says it was an allowance to the Israelites to do this, right? It's not, that's not really the essence of Avodah, uh, Avodah Hashem, of, of the service of God. It's, it's sort of like, well, you know, the people lived in idolatry. You know, we need to extract them from that. And through a period, we're going to give them this context of you're going to sacrifice only to Hashem. Um, and it's almost like, a, you know, like a, a, what would be the word? Like um, over from older uh, uh, rituals? Or yeah, left a leftover or a crutch or something like pointing them to, you know, the, the ideal. I, I think when I read uh, the Rambam, it, it, I, I get that sense. And I think for the, the Clementine literature, uh, they see immersion as critical. Um, they don't seem to place, interestingly enough, a tremendous amount of emphasis on the death and resurrection. It doesn't seem to have the same kind of um, atoning element as, as contemporary Christianity then would or now would emphasize on it. But they really put Jesus' role on the true interpretation of the Torah. Um, and so he is the one that is revealing this. But at, at the same time, uh, they believe that, in essence, he's teaching the same thing that Moses did, that Enoch did, that you know, the other patriarchs did. So in essence, it's not the first time that he has revealed himself, if you will. Uh, that's why accepting Moses or accepting Jesus are both palatable to them because they're both representing the same truth. Uh, they also see uh, a Jewish rejection of the claims that are ascribed to Jesus as part of this divine plan. You know, the, the, the quote-unquote Jewish uh, rejection is simply so the non-Jews can, can join. Uh, so it's, it's not in any way a, an elimination of the people of Israel. It's not a, a rejection of the Jewish people. Uh, there is a call to teshuvah, to repentance, but it's done in a very different way that, than, like you said, the sacraments and so forth, except with the exception of baptism. It's done in a very different way than what we find in the church fathers. And I think that makes it uh, an amazing text that, again, for no other reason, it just sheds light on the diversity of what we call, quote unquote, Christianity during that time. And in a previous book that you wrote, you mentioned some influence in Islam of Jewish Christianity. Do you see this as a precursor of, of Islam since it's around the same time and it has some of the elements of the prophet, the true interpretation, the, the emphasis of um, some of the more, um, you know, sacrifice related um, aspects of his life. It's more of a, of a messenger or someone that gets you closer to God. And there is uh, the emphasis on the, the, sonship of uh, the messianic figure and messiah meaning something a little different than the mainstream christianity i think it's certainly plausible i think like you said the the prophet status is i think very important um i think that there is some connection i don't, I don't know that it's been definitively established but i think that those kind of ideas you know especially in the translation of these texts right we we have these in different languages um, and I think that they inevitably, as you know, you read the Quran, you can see what are basically uh, elements of the Midrashim. You see this influence very clearly. They have the biblical text. There's an influence from Christianity. But I think that all these divergent forms are part, uh, that's, that's the common sources that is, Islam is drawing from as well. And they're fashioning their identity uh, at the same time. Um, you know, are they directly accessing the Clementine recognitions or the Clementine homilies? Um, I don't know that anybody has ever uh, posited that, but I can certainly see these ideas being part of its development. 
Do they ever talk about the divine of David or some aspects that you see in the Didache or in other Jewish Christian texts? Because to me, um, earlier Jewish Christian texts are very revealing of the diversity of uh, Christian beliefs or even Jewish Christian traditions that were floating around. Well, I don't speak, uh, you know, uh, specifically about the uh, of those texts, but I, I think I would emphasize, like you said, it's just the diversity of these groups and whether they are influencing each other, whether they're retaining like an earlier tradition, or whether in fact they do actually have a legitimate connection back to the first century. Um, I think I think it goes back to my my basic premise is that, as I mentioned in, in another work, that you have a multi faceted movement even in the first century. And I think that's what a lot of people have a struggle with. They think that everything was unified, every, everybody's on the same page. And I think it's it's basically like like uh, Jacob Neuser says, you know, they believe that Jesus was crucified and was resurrected. And then everything after that was probably up for debate and interpretation and discussion. And I think that you you can have those elements exist in all these different forums and in these different literatures that you you mentioned, um, and and they're just sort of like a little uh, you know part of the stream that flows off in a different direction, and then it may you know sort of wither out and die, uh, or it might be reabsorbed into the the church as it gains steam and basically seeks to uh, you know legitimize or delegitimize what it finds acceptable or unacceptable. So this is something that I ask uh, Christian scholars when I have them on my show. So it's, it's kind of a curveball, but uh, where would you send uh, an honest seeker to find information? If there's so many books out there and so many interpretations and so many ways that you can look at the Bible, where would someone go to um, make sense of this all and find as, as legitimate or as appropriate of a understanding of these texts? without going crazy? Well, I, I think what I would recommend really is to have a historical understanding of the Second Temple era um, and to try to look for, for material that is not biased or at least to striving to be not biased. Um, if, if I could, you know, I, my purpose is not to, to highlight the book, but there, there's a book that I wrote called Messianic Expectations. Uh, it's from the biblical era to the, the you know late second temple period, early rabbinic period. And one of the things that I really strove to do there was to be very neutral, uh, to highlight the texts themselves, you know, let them speak, as I like to say, uh, certainly look at rabbinic interpretation, but also look at, um, you know, the community at Qumran, you know, sort of all these different groups, what they would have espoused in a particular view. If you can find a book like that that covers different topics, I think it's important because people sort of need like a middle ground so they don't feel that uh, they're either being uh, evangelized or they're being counter-evangelized, uh, counter if that's a term. Um, you know, this is not about Jews for Jesus or Jews for Judaism, uh, as I tell people, because, I, you know, obviously uh, in the synagogue, we're, we're dealing with many people who are coming in and learning. What I try to tell them is that you have to sort of put the theological aspect aside and then try to focus in on the history. And then, of course, as their their track continues, uh, they can sort of begin to revisit the the theological issues and see where their where their uh, their path takes them. Um, and and it's interesting. I, I had a person. I was speaking with someone today who uh, was not Jewish, but they had been studying Judaism for for many years. Um, and for a variety of reasons, they opted to uh, join a, a particular uh, Christian. Uh, group. And um, I asked them, you know, I said very respectfully, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm wondering why you did that. And they said, oh, you know, because um, I went to this place and, and what I had learned about Judaism, I saw elements of that in their particular service. There's not a live. Um, and I just sort of found something that spoke to me. And, and we had a very nice exchange. And I basically said, listen, you know, you study this material, um, you have a very positive view of the Jewish people, you have appreciation for the God of Israel. Um, I think that's wonderful. Um, you know, it's, it's a difficult path, but I, I think, you know, we can try to be honest brokers with people, be respectful, 
and and try to provide them the resources where they can make honest um, intellectual and sincere religious beliefs um, with without any kind of hatred or bias or or, or you know uh, malevolent attitude towards anyone. So I think you know that's not really the books that I write sort of have that undercurrent of tolerance and of understanding. So if, if I could say that, I would say that that's probably um, whatever material you choose should be a, a key aspect of that. Wonderful. Well, we want to thank you for your time. And uh, how can people get a hold of your book? Uh, well, they can go to Amazon. Uh, they can type in uh, Reimagining Boundaries or they can type in my name. Uh, it's a long name, but Juan Marcos uh, Bejarano Gutierrez. Um, and of course, they can go to Modern. Uh, hyphen scribe.com, uh, M-O-D-E-R-N hyphen scribe.com. Uh, and that's my, my website. It's got, doesn't have all my books, but it has a lot of my books and, um, you know, they can follow me, uh, on different social media as well. Again, thank you for your time and we hope to have you on, uh, very soon. Thank you. Thank you, David.